Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each year, when the Jewish people reach that section of the Torah in Exodus, known as Parashat Bishalach, namely the story of the splitting of the Red Sea, I think about that story and the variety of questions that arise from the splitting of the Red Sea. And one of the primary uh, implications of that story has to do with the notion of miracles, nace in Hebrew. And so this morning I want to speak to you about the splitting of the Red Sea, the Jewish notion of miracles and Jewish views on miracles, and speak about a number of different responses that traditionally Jews have had to this event and these miraculous events. So let's start, as we often do, with the text. Exodus 14. God said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all of his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am God when they receive glory through the Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going on in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. The cloud was there in the darkness, and yet it lit up the night, so that neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the dry land, the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. And the Egyptians set out and pursued all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. Then during the morning watch, God looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw them into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let us get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then God said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians and on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out a hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. When the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, God overthrew them in the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. 
None of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry land, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. That day, God saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that God used against the Egyptians and the people, they feared God and believed in him and in his servant Moses. Each year, I try to imagine how frightening it must have been for our ancestors to reach the Red Sea and know that the Egyptian army was closing in on them. Perhaps they thought that freedom was only an illusion. Perhaps they thought it was a mistake to believe that they could escape from the great Egyptian military power. Perhaps they thought how foolish they had been to believe Moses, who spoke for an invisible God. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites crowd out to the Eternal, and they said to Moses, Was it for the want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? Exodus 14.10 What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians? For it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." We don't know what Moses was thinking with the reed sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. As a good leader, he tried to reassure him. Moses said to the people in Exodus 14, 13, 14, have no fear, stand by and witness the deliverance which the eternal will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The eternal will battle for you. You hold your peace. Then the Eternal One said to Moses, Why do they cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, and you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it, so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. Well, the text is quite powerful. Faced with the Sea of Reeds, or as we sometimes call it, the Red Sea, the Israelites were scared, Moses was anxious, and God seems to say to them, trust in me, I will ensure that you have a safe crossing. Is that a miracle? Is that what we call a miracle in Judaism? In the Bible, the Talmud, and other ancient medieval Jewish writings, it is taken for granted that miracles can and do occur. Although a miracle was not thought of as a suspension of natural law since before the rise of modern science, there is no such concept as natural law that required to be suspended. In the world of the rabbis and the Torah, a miracle was an extraordinary event, which, precisely because it was different from the normal course of events, provided evidence of God's direct intervention. 
Hence the biblical terms nace, sign, is used to describe these events. Notice this kind of linguistic play. A nace is a sign for God's intervention. And we in English therefore call God's intervention a miracle. The miracle is an indication of divine intervention in particular circumstances. The whole question of miracles involves the doctrine of divine providence, how the transcendent God can be said to become manifest in the particular events of the world. Although this way of looking at the problem did not emerge in Jewish thought until much later, until the age of the medieval philosophers. In Mishnah, the second century beginnings of rabbinic writing, it defines as a vain prayer, a cry to God to undo the past. Two illustrations are given there. One is where a man's wife is pregnant and he prays that the child she is carrying should be a boy. The other is where a man hears from afar the sound of lamentation and prays that the sound should not be one that proceeds from his own home. In both these instances, the prayer is futile the event has already taken place. In the first instance, however, God can perform a miracle and change the sex of the fetus from male to female, but that, as the later rabbinic writing state, in its comment to the Mishnah, is to pray for a miracle to be performed. And no person has the right to assume that he individually is worthy for God to perform a miracle on their account. Throughout the rabbinic literature, the possibility of miracles occurring is accepted and unreservedly while at the same time, which is now called the natural order, is seen as the usual manifestation of divine providence. And the identification of a particular event as a miracle is viewed with caution. Yes, it's true. The rabbis were not overwhelmingly supportive of everyday miracles to be called miracles. They were more comfortable with using the word nace to indicate that these everyday events, like nature, weather, the birth of a child, were a sign of God's presence, but not necessarily God's intervention in that which had started at the seven days of creation. The medieval philosophers, too, acknowledge that miracles do occur, but there is a tendency to explain even the biblical miracles in natural terms. Despite the tensions in this matter, the power of holy people to work miracles is recognized in the Bible, the Talmud, the Midrash, and in subsequent Jewish hagiography down to the Hasidic world. It's tales of miracles performed by the Hasidic Rebbe. Some modern theologians have incorrectly read a Talmudic debate in Masechet Shabbat as implying that there is a degree of spiritual vulgarity 
in hankering out of after miracles. The passage tells of a poor man whose wife has died, leaving him with a little baby. A miracle happened in, in that his breast became as a woman's that he might suckle the infant. One rabbi in the Talmud said, how great this man must have been that such a miracle was performed for him. But his colleague retorted, on the contrary, how unworthy this man must have been that the order of creation has changed on his behalf. However, the second rabbi is not denigrating holy men on whose behalf miracles happening. Only this particular man and this particular kind of miracle involving a reversal of the roles and the nature of male and female. The real question for us in looking back in Jewish tradition is not that can miracles happen, but did they and do they happen now? As Hume, the great British philosopher, recognized, the question is one of evidence. Many events that were seen in the past as miracles can now be understood as due to the operation of natural law, even though Hume himself is less categorical about the absolute necessity of cause A always having to produce the effect of B it usually seems to produce. Undoubtedly, a modern Jewish believer will be far less prone to attribute extraordinary events to a supernatural intervention. But belief in God's power will not allow him to deny the very possibility that God's presence is seen in unusual ways. A Hasidic saying has it that a Hasid who believes that all miracles said to have been performed by Hasidic masters actually happened is a fool. But anyone who believes that they could not have happened is an unbeliever. The same could be said of the Jewish approach to miracles in general. Now let's get back to the Red Sea. Listen again to chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. Then the Eternal One said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. You lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it, so that the Israelites march into the sea on dry land. One more time, listen carefully. Why do they cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, and you, Moses, lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it, so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry land. God seems to be saying to the Israelites in the Torah, do not pray, or perhaps God is saying, do not complain. Just act. Just act to save this people. God seems angry that Moser is either lacking in faith or perhaps more importantly, wisdom. Has Moses learned nothing from the chapters in Exodus that precede this? As much as God has been present in this and previous Torah portions, as much as God has seemed to control the situation, The real lesson 
In this story seems to be that God cannot accomplish God's purpose without human beings. Hold out your arms over the sea and split it. You Israelites, go forth. It appears that God relies on us to do what is necessary. With all the power that God demonstrates in this narrative, why does God need Moses, one would ask. The answer seems to be, for many rabbinic commentators, that God requires human initiative. Judaism, as it's understood today, is a religion of activism, not quietism. God does not right the wrongs of society, but requires we do it. God does not split the Red Sea necessarily, but God informs the Israelites and Moses how it is possible for them to walk through the waters. If we read the Hebrew Bible as Jack Miles did in his book, God, a Biography, we discover that God becomes increasingly remote, according to Jack Miles. God appears less as the one who pulls the puppet strings and more like parents who have educated their children and now no longer try to control them. Of course, from a theological perspective, this is both exciting and frightening. God, in effect, says to us, study and learn the lessons I have taught you. They are enshrined in the sacred texts the great works of human genius, and the lessons of history. If you assiduously apply yourself with humility and with an understanding that what you do makes a difference, you will know how to act. You must be careful, but do not be frightened and do not hesitate. In this section of Exodus known as Bishalach, God seems to be instructing Moses to tell the people that before a miracle can happen, they must go into the water, go forward. No willingness, no miracles are possible without our willingness to act. The rabbis understood this very clearly. And they therefore created a midrash on this passage that says, Moses lifted his staff and commanded the sea to split. Nothing happened. This, of course, is not exactly what the Torah text says. In 14.21.22, the Torah text tells us, Then Moses held his arm over the sea, and the Eternal drove back the sea with a strong east wind all that night, and turned the sea into dry land. The waters were split, and the Israelites went into the sea on dry land, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. But our rabbinic writers of the earliest period seem to be uncomfortable with the straight interpretation, the literal interpretation of the text. Listen to the story that they created, a very early Midrash. The 
the tribes were arguing in response to the earlier phrase, go into the water, who should go first? Each tribe suggested that they were too important to go into the water first. Finally, out of frustration, the Midrash tells us that an individual named Nachshon jumped into the water, and only then did the sea split. Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, has been interpreted to mean that God will perform miracles for us, save us, and save the world. But all too often, this is both too simplistic and a misreading of the text. The text says that God's powers come not from miracles produced on high, but from acts of courage, justice, and compassion below. We are in the majority of Jewish writings, known as shlichim, God's representatives on the plane of history. And if we prefer, we might even call individuals malachim, divine messengers who connect earth and heaven and transform the world. You know, one of the great modern mystics, Rabbi Larry Kushner, now of San Francisco, writes, ordinary peoples are messengers of the Most High. He seems to be suggesting that we have the power to change the course of the world like Nakshon, who jumps in first, and it is only then that the waters split. Small actions have transformative power. Every moment is an opportunity for a miracle. We need only be ready to initiate it. Now, of course, all of this suggests that one interpretation is only one interpretation. Many, many Jews are more comfortable with the more traditional understanding of miracles, namely God's intervention. Here's a more traditional approach, not one that I necessarily hold as my own, but I think it worth speaking about. If God split the Red Sea, or if God brought the Ten Plagues, or God caused the sun to stand still at the command of someone like Joshua, where are all of God's miracles today? We don't suggest that God has gone on vacation. So what's going on? There is a holiday on the Jewish calendar whose main point is to resolve this very problem. And that's why the rabbis of the early Talmud maintained that even though every other festival will eventually fall aside in the Messianic era, one holiday will be observed for forever. Its message is so powerful that it can never dare to forget, be forgotten. It's not Passover. It's not Yom Kippur. Surprisingly, the sole festival granted immortality in Jewish tradition is the next major holiday on the calendar, and it is the seemingly minor day 
of Purim, the day in which the Jews of Persia are saved from extermination. So I want to read you a brief story uh, which tries to um, explain why Purim. Uh, you know what? Maybe we'll try and do it differently. There is a Hebrew word in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, central to the story of Purim, that captures this notion of miracles best. It was turned around. Everything that seemed like a misfortune at first was in retrospect recognized as a divine miracle. Because there are miracles, unlike those in the Bible, that come camouflaged as seeming coincidence, as natural events, as incidents that just happened, but that in reality, according to traditional Judaism, are the product of heavenly intervention in the affairs of humankind. The very name of the holiday, Purim, comes from the word meaning lottery. Some call that a game of pure luck. The, wom- the winner determined by random, inexplicable forces that have no rational basis. Faith, according to traditional Judaism, allows us to understand that in a world governed by an all-seeing God, there cannot be room for blind chance. A lottery is far more than luck. It is allowing the director of the universe to decide the outcome while hiding in the background. Purim, the salvation of the Jewish people in Purim, is a holiday that harps on what people call coincidence. It reminds us, as the proverb has it, that coincidence is God's way of choosing to remain anonymous. Purim has many miracles in its story. Not the kind of miracles that override the rules of nature, rather the miracles that happen so much more frequently in our own lives. The miracles that we so often discount because God chooses not to shout but to whisper. It is God's still small voice that we have to attune ourselves to hear as God turns tragedies into blessings, and why the festival of Purim, which we will have more to speak about in future podcasts with its message of miracles camouflaged as coincidence, will last, outlast every other holiday on the Jewish calendar. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts... I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this episode on the CHRI website, or you can download it from iTunes Podcasts. Shalom, and have a good day. Shalom, and have a good day.